Welcome to PwC's accounting podcast series. I'm Heather Horn. The theme of today's episode is lessons learned. As companies look ahead to Q3 and year end, we wanted to share some of the key learnings and trends companies faced when assessing potential impairments during Q2. We did the same episode back in June with respect to Q1, and it's very interesting to learn what changed and what stayed the same in the second quarter. Joining me remotely are Andreas Ohl and John Benedetti. Andreas is a national office partner and a frequent guest to our show. And John, joining us for the second time, is a partner in PwC's capital markets and accounting advisory practice. We've got a great show today, so let's get started. So, John and Andreas, thank you so much for joining me today. I'm looking forward to updating our conversation from June when you both came on to talk a bit about an analysis that was done of impairments that were recorded in the first quarter. And I know, John, you and your team have spent some time updating that analysis, and it's perfect timing as we approach the end of third quarter to educate people on, you know, what we've seen so far this year. So, John, maybe just to kick things off, can you remind our listeners what that analysis was, what data we're looking at, et cetera? Yeah, absolutely. And and, and thanks, Heather. And so, you know, consistent with what we did in Q1, uh, we were interested to understand what we were seeing broadly um, across the marketplace in context of impairments and disclosed trigger events, predominantly by virtue of obviously the disruption that we're seeing in the economy uh, driven by the by the virus outbreak. Um, so we did that in Q1, and, and that was definitely an interesting look at where we were from an overall index perspective. And then we have subsequently updated that for Q2, where we've gone into the S&P 500. And for all filers in the S&P 500, we've gathered data, both in terms of whether they had a disclosed triggering event, to the extent that they had a disclosed triggering event, whether they recognized an impairment um, across any of the asset classes being either goodwill, intangibles, and or other long-lived assets. Assets. And then to the extent that any impairment was recorded, um, we actually captured the total quantum of the impairment recorded across the different asset classes. And now we've got two data sets with both Q1 and Q2 um, that we can look at, which you know shows a little bit of the evolution, if you will, of how filers have been dealing with the impairment challenges that have been driven by the economy as we get further and further into the, uh, into the calendar year end. So then, John, big picture, what was what would you categorize as the one or two most notable observations from either looking just at Q2 or comparing Q2 and Q1? Yeah, I I certainly think there's a couple of interesting points in there, you know, maybe to start with what I would consider to be sort of some of the similarities between uh, between Q2 and Q and Q1. You know, certainly for those of our listeners that uh, tuned in last time, um, I think the story we told you was very much a sector driven story um, with predominantly more triggering events and then a significantly higher quantum of recognized impairments really, you know, centered within retail and consumer and then energy as well. When you look at Q2, Two, while we have seen maybe a small uptick in recorded or disclosed trigger events and then by extension recorded impairments in some of the other sectors, the predominance of the numbers are still being driven out of the retail and consumer product sector as well as out of the energy sector. So there is kind of consistency in context of sort of what we're seeing in terms of the sector story. 
I do think, though, when you sit back and you look at this um, as of the end of Q2, um, we're still in a spot where a relatively small percentage of the overall index um, has ultimately you know, resulted in a situation where they've recorded an impairment. And the numbers between Q1 and Q2 from a, a filer perspective are, in fact, very consistent. So if you look at the comparison between Q1 and Q2, respectively, from a disclosed trigger event perspective, in Q2, we had about 28% of the index that disclosed a triggering event. That compares with 26% in Q1. And then of that, roughly 24% of the index subsequently recorded an impairment across any one or more than one of the individual asset classes. And that compares with 20% in Q1. Um, So the numbers are very consistent. And if anything, it might lead to the conclusion that there might be a small downtick, if you will, in context of the fact that the Q2 numbers of the 142 filers that disclosed a triggering event, roughly 51 of of those were entities that had disclosed a triggering event and or an impairment in Q1 as well. So they're not individually discrete filers when you look across uh, the two quarters. So actually, that was going to be one of my questions of whether we saw any repeat companies. And it sounds like indeed we did. And in fact, we saw actually more of a predominance of that than I would have expected. Yeah, we did. Um, and, and I think, you know, the other spot in the analysis that uh, that shows up is that if you do look at just the aggregate quantum of the impairments recorded, um, that has gone down about 20% between Q1 and Q2. And I think what that's likely indicative of is perhaps a couple of different factors. Um, we'll talk a little bit about, you know, obviously how the overall index is performing. And so maybe there's a certain amount of optimism baked into, you know, the individual um entities forecast and then by extension, potential impairment recognition. Um, But certainly, I think there's an impact by virtue of the fact that we have a significant number of those individual filers that um, had recorded an impairment in Q1 coming back again in Q2 and recording what I think is, by all accounts, a smaller impairment, right? So while the numerics in context is saying the number of filers that had trigger events and the numbers that recognized impairments were very consistent, um, the total quantum of impairments recorded fell by about 20% between Q1 and Q2. So then if we look at this data, for those companies that disclosed a trigger in Q1, are we seeing them again, sorry, a trigger, but no impairment, then did we see many of those come back with the impairment second quarter? So it's almost like they foreshadowed or it's hard to see a trend there. It's difficult to see a trend there. I mean, ultimately, when you look at the overall numbers, um, you know, there is a a, a sort of arguably um, small number of folks that um, in Q1, you know, disclosed a triggering event, but ultimately did not record an impairment. Right. Um, So the percentage of those in Q1 was 26 percent of the filers disclosed a trigger event and then roughly 20 percent recorded an impairment. Right. So it's a very small number of filers that had a disclosed trigger in Q1 but no impairment recognized, right? Um, So it's difficult to kind of say how much of that is sort of bleeding into Q2 in terms of, you know, entities that had a disclosed trigger event, but no impairment in Q1, and then subsequently had obviously a trigger and then a recorded impairment in Q2. But any impact is relatively small when you think about the fact that it's only about 6% of the index in Q1 that had disclosed trigger, 
but didn't record an impairment. And bear in mind as well, Heather, right, that the numbers that I'm referencing here um, are impairments across all asset classes, right? Um, and so, you know, there's certainly situations where perhaps there was a goodwill impairment in, in, in one quarter or, you know, then impairments in other asset classes in, you know, Q1 versus Q2, depending on which file you're looking at. Uh, you mentioned that you saw across all, you know, you saw goodwill impairments and then other like, tangible asset impairments or potentially intangible asset impairments. And was there any trend in sort of you saw half of the impairments were goodwill or again, it was sort of all over the place? Well, it certainly differs by sector. You know, when you sit back and you look at the data in aggregate, you know, I, I think, you know, it, it, it's relatively um, easy to see that I think, you know, there was a higher percentage of, you know, of goodwill impairments in Q1. And then in Q2, we've seen sort of perhaps an uptick in impairments with respect to long-lived assets. You know, there's a smattering of indefinite lived intangible impairments in both quarters. Um, so it's difficult to sort of, you know, to draw, I think, too many conclusions from that on an overall trend perspective. Um, but you definitely see it when you look at some of the data trends. And then maybe last question on trends, and this one you may need to say qualitatively, in terms of 2020 versus 2019, you know, is there a clear large increase compared to the prior year or it's too hard to really say? Yeah, I mean, look, Heather, we didn't, you know, we haven't collected the data kind of going back into 2019 and prior, right? I think, you know, definitively from an anecdotal perspective, I'd say absolutely there's been an uptick um, in impairments. We're certainly feeling that in context of just the conversations that we're having with clients. It's obviously an issue that is very top of mind for all statement preparers at the moment. But on the same token, I really wouldn't step back and say that in Q1 and Q2, we've had sort of a quote unquote tidal wave of impairments, right? Um, it's definitely increased. Um, and we definitely see some some trends and consistencies between Q1 and Q2 and some differences there. Uh, but we're still talking about a relatively small percentage of the overall index that have recorded an impairment across all asset classes as of where we stand at the end of Q2. And I think that raises a bunch of questions in context of looking forward into Q3 and year end, right? You know, and and a bunch of questions in context of you know, what the impact of the overall market is having and, and, and what people's views are of the future when they're thinking about, you know, both triggering events as well as, you know, the, the mathematics behind quantifying a potential impairment. So, John, you hit my next two sets of questions. I'm going to take the latter one first. And actually, Andreas, go to you and just for a little perspective on the market and how that's fit in, because obviously we saw a huge sharp decline and then a big rebound. But as you've told me many times, that rebound has really been driven by only a handful of stocks. So how does what's going on in the market fit in with the impairments that we've seen? And then we can get into Q3 and Q4. Yeah, th thanks, Heather. I, there's certainly been a lot of speculation that the strong performance of the stock market is part of the reason why there have been maybe fewer impairments than what people might have expected, say, back in uh, in the March timeframe. But as you as you mentioned, that's maybe not entirely the the whole story. And I think there's probably two reasons for that. One is, you know, if you if you peel back the performance of the indexes, you'll you'll see actually that a small number of predominantly large tech companies are driving the uh, driving the index. And so, if you look at some broader measures of the stock market, like the New York Stock Exchange Composite Index, for example, that's actually down over the last twelve months, while the you know the Nasdaq is up forty percent or something in that time period. So. There's quite a divergence between some of the very large companies and sort of 
everybody uh, everybody else. So I suspect there are quite a few companies whose stock price is down for the year or down in the last 12 months. So that can't be the the whole story. I think the the other thing to maybe keep in mind is that uh, you know before you get an impairment, as John mentioned, you need a triggering event. And while it's often pointed to as a decline in stock price as being a triggering event, that is a bit of a, a lagging indicator. There's a lot of other triggers that are uh, listed as examples in the accounting standard, and many of them are more focused on things happening inside the company that maybe you know the market isn't yet aware of. And so, we always caution companies to make sure you think about all evidences of uh, of, of triggers. And not just focus too much on the uh, the stock price, and particularly right now where you have a situation where there's this divergence between the real economy, which is you know, it's down whatever thirty percent in the second quarter, while the market was up, even or certainly very few stocks were down thirty percent in the second quarter. That that real economy impact is what a lot of the other triggering events that are in the standard focus on. So then, Andreas, I know this podcast is not necessarily about the accounting for impairments, but just as a quick reminder, can you give us a few of those other triggers that companies maybe should be focused on? Yeah, the, the other triggers are really things like you're operating at a much lower capacity or you're missing budgets or you're you're losing customers or other things that maybe change your outlook for your business going forward and that isn't just going forward one or two quarters it could be uh, it could be longer than that so if you take an example like the travel industry where there's more and more reports that analysts are speculating that travel won't get back to where it was in 2019 until 2023 or 2024 you do any kind of a cash flow forecast and you have the next four or five years being well below what you planned, that's likely going to be uh, constitute a triggering event. Okay. So then in the context of all that we've just talked about, maybe John, going back to you, what do we think as we look ahead to Q3? You know, what, what would the data tell us? Yeah. I mean, it's always hard to predict the future, right? But, you know, certainly I think what you know, a part of what I take away from looking at kind of Q1 and Q2 and, and just the context of the fact that I think we've, you know, we've seen an uptick in impairments, but we haven't seen a waterfall of impairments. You know, does that does that tell us something about how folks are thinking about their future forecast? Right. Um, and now, look, and when we compare this to, you know, prior downturns in the past, uh, I think certainly people are of the belief that, you know, the speed of the economic stimulus that came to that came to bear to help uh, profit up components of the economy was quicker than uh, maybe in prior downturns. And that, I think, has driven some optimism, if you will, for, you know, the quote unquote V-shaped recovery to occur. Certainly, that's what we're seeing in context of the broader index. But to Andreas's point, you know, while the index is up, there's certainly a big percentage of individual filers in there that's, that have a depressed stock price. And so the real question I think is as we approach Q3 and Q4, is the optimism in context of a rapid recovery 
um, going to hold, if you will, right? To the extent that it doesn't hold, you know, then I think, you know, we might be in store for an uptick in impairments going forward. Um, and so when you start to think about that, you know, you can, you can potentially see a situation where perhaps the optimism around a V-shaped recovery that maybe was present in uh, the back end of Q1 and Q2 doesn't hold for as long as we think it might. And, and certainly that could be impactful, both in context of entities' conclusions in regards to triggering events, but then, you know, equally, if not as impactful in context of the quantum of impairments that may need to be taken thereafter. Maybe if I could just uh, build on that, maybe one, one other thing companies probably should focus on is many companies have their annual test in the fourth quarter, and that's often built off of their annual budgeting process. But particularly if your testing date is early in the fourth quarter, say it's the beginning of October or the middle of October, if you end up concluding that you have an impairment at that point, there's often going to be a question as to, well, if you were impaired in October, are you really sure you weren't impaired at the end of the, that you didn't have a triggering event and you weren't impaired at the end of the third quarter? So this year in particular, given that we might get a lot of information, maybe hopefully positive, maybe not on a vaccine or the timing of a vaccine in, in the uh, October, November timeframe, I think companies need to be really careful about how they think about whether they have a trigger or an impairment at uh, at 9.30. And Andreas, maybe, could, could you comment as well? Just I, I know it's something that we talk about with clients a lot. And Heather, I know you referenced it earlier, right? Maybe just the, um, you know, the perspective or, or as, as some may call it, the importance of sort of foreshadowing on, and, and not necessarily sort of surprising the marketplace with a very large impairment, whether that be driven by a trigger or by just the normal course um, impairment testing data as it arises? Yeah, so John, as you know, I mean, this is an area that's received a lot of focus, particularly from regulators over the years where companies take impairments and absent a really discrete event in that quarter, they will often get questions around, well, you must have had some inkling that this was coming and maybe you should have had a disclosure that said, hey, for this particular asset or this particular business, I'm relatively close. In other words, my my fair value is getting close to my carrying value. And so I'm at a heightened risk of impairment. And so I think that is some of the thinking that we should be seeing at 930, that if you're starting your budgeting process and things are getting a little uncertain as to the timing of the recovery, you should be thinking really about do I need to have some enhanced disclosures in my third quarter filing around the probability that I may have a uh, an impairment when I do my testing later in the fourth quarter. So I think that's, that's just sound advice to make sure people are really thinking about that. Yeah. And, and we do see some of that, you know, anecdotally in individual disclosures in the data set. Unfortunately, we don't have a good way to capture a mm-hmm. statistic broadly across the index to say X percentage have, you know, included some level of foreshadowing disclosure. Uh, it is floating around out there, but I couldn't tell you, you know, today whether that's 50%, 60% or 20% of those filers. But definitely an important reminder. So, Andreas, I have another question for you. You know, you've talked about you were just talking about if you have a trigger in Q3 and then your annual test in Q4 and you're talking in that context specifically about goodwill, right? Because that's where you have the annual test. But how would you think about your long-lived assets then that would be more only on a trigger-based impairment? Yes. Yeah, so- 
comment definitely was about goodwill and indefinite live intangibles that are subject to the annual uh, annual test. But you know, the, I think the reality is because those tests are often very closely linked to the budgeting process, that causes you to have a lot of new information that may be relevant to assessing other assets for impairment as well. So even though there isn't an annual test for long-lived assets, anytime you have the new data point of a budget, that's going to have some impact on your thinking. So I, I, I think you still have that same issue of if you take an impairment in uh, in Q4, are you sure that it wasn't there in uh, you know in Q3, or are you sure you shouldn't have at least given the market a heads up that something you know that there's a real chance something might be coming? I, I think Heather, the other thing that I have a lot of conversations with my clients about, um, and it seems to be a question that comes up on a on a not infrequent basis, particularly when we're entering um, a downturn cycle where impairment risk is you know progressively increasing, um, and it is relevant to the long life asset discussion is really as uh, the the concept of asset groupings, right? Um, and just just making sure, right, that your asset groupings may not get a whole lot of scrutiny year over year when you know things are going extremely well and there's a lot of uh, you know of economic optimism and your results are performing um, and you know you're in a growth cycle etc right you know really the last time you want to be addressing asset groupings is when you're on the cusp of an impairment right um, and so to the extent that you're sitting there as a statement preparer currently you haven't had an impairment or a trigger event yet but you might be looking forward and saying, geez, the risk of that is progressively increasing. It might be a good time to sit back and open up your documentation around asset groupings, ask some critical questions around it, and make sure that it is you know, sort of road tested and ready to go in the event that, uh, that, that you do find yourself in a spot where you need to take an impairment. I think that's a great reminder and one I know, Andreas, I've heard you make a few times on past podcasts. So John stole your thunder today on that one. But um, on that note, then, are any other key reminders that you guys would think about as you look? ahead at Q3 and then even further ahead to Q4. Yeah, so Heather, I think the, the last thing I'd emphasize, and you know, we've talked about this on some of the previous podcasts and webcasts, is just we continue to be in a world of heightened uncertainty. You know, in the past, maybe it was which shape is the recovery going to be? How quickly was it going to come? Now, I think we've moved into this new world where the timing of a effective vaccine and the rollout of that and the global rollout of that is maybe one of the primary drivers of uncertainty, but it still takes you back to, you know, the, the, the best practice is to try to capture that uncertainty through, you know, multiple scenario analysis, as opposed to you know, doing one scenario and trying to, uh, you know, account for the uncertainty that we, we live in right now through some sort of a qualitative adjustment to the, uh, to the discount rate. And I know not everybody's systems or processes are set up for that, but, uh, that certainly is a, a best practice that we're encouraging companies who are struggling with how to how to just capture all the moving parts right now. Definitely a lot for companies to think about. So, John and Andreas, as always, thank you so much for your insight. And I'm already looking ahead to think what you might be telling me next quarter when we look at the Q3 analysis. Uh, but before we wrap up today, as you guys both know, I always like to ask a question on a lighter note. And this one is particularly in honor of Andreas because... For our listeners, Andreas sits in front of a cabinet that's full of mementos from all his various travel. So what I'm going to ask today is what everyone's favorite memento from 
a trip has been, and I will go first. Mine is very easy because it's always my photographs. So pictures of my kids in different places um, is always something that I really love looking back at. So with that, Andreas, I'll turn it over to you first. I have many to choose from, but I'll, I'll pick my 200 and something million year old fossil over my shoulder that's from the, uh, the deserts in, uh, in Morocco. I have to say that's one of my favorites of yours too, Andreas, looking at it. So, and how about you, John? Um, I'm looking at mine as well. You can't see it because it's on my, uh, the mantle over my fireplace. But uh, a couple of years ago, uh, our entire family went down to Florida to visit my mother and father who um, are retired down there. And my mother's actually a very avid uh, glass blower. Um, and so she brought us to her uh, uh, her glass blowing studio, and as a family, we took a glass blowing class together, um, and we all made something. And and the the, the piece that my wife made, um, which was by far the the nicest as comparison to the piece that I made, um, is now prominently displayed on our mantle. So uh, I, it reminds me of that trip every time I see it. Wow, I love that hobby too. Something to think about. So, um, all right. Well, both as always, what a nice note to end on. And thank you very much. Tune in again this Thursday for the second to last episode in our What's Next summer series. Today's the first day of fall. So it's time to finish the summer series and gear up for our fall series on finance transformation and technology. So that you never miss an episode of any of our audio content, subscribe to this series wherever you listen to your podcast. And to stay up to date on the latest content, subscribe to our newsletter at cfodirect.com and let's connect on LinkedIn. For PwC, I'm Heather Horn. Thanks for tuning in. This podcast is brought to you by PwC All Rights Reserved. PwC refers to the U.S. member firm or one of its subsidiaries or affiliates and may sometimes refer to the PwC network. Each member firm is a separate legal entity. Please see www.pwc.com structure for further details. This podcast is for general information purposes only and should not be used as a substitute for consultation with professional advisors.